Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, how we're supposed to react and respond to the world around us. We had a question that was given in our comments section on YouTube this week from Empress Kimberly. Kimberly asked, how do I deal with difficult people when I can't get away from them? When we're dealing with someone that's difficult or that's aggressive, especially in a polite setting like a Bible study or a dinner or a family gathering, and you just can't leave. Uh, I think that God has given us a kind of adrenaline and a response that is either fight or flight to be able to protect ourselves. And sometimes we respond with that fight or flight instead of really looking at how does God want us to live? How does God want us to respond? The truth is, is that there are difficult people all around us. There are people that are bullies that just wanna say things that are hurtful. There's people that are passive aggressive. And this is my very favorite, I say extremely sarcastically. I dislike when someone is passive aggressive. In fact, personally, and I'm not saying this is the way to handle it, but I found I find myself when someone starts to be passive aggressive towards me is immediately finding some distraction, something else to talk about. So I'll, I'll respond often. Someone gets passive aggressive with me and I'll say, is that a new outfit? Right in the middle of their right in the middle of what they're saying. So it just takes away from from what they're saying. Is, is that a new outfit? Uh, are it, did you guys do something different with with it in here? It looks it looks different to me. I like it. It looks good. And maybe trying to compliment them back. Um, this is a personal way that I've dealt with it. I don't know if it's necessarily a biblical way, except that I am genuinely trying to take an interest in them. And maybe that's a really good way to deal with someone that's aggressive. They're saying what's aggressive, and instead of just sitting and listening to what they say, you look for something to really compliment them with. Now, this is only gonna work for a, a, a short amount of time. Um, maybe we can respond in a little bit more biblical way. I think of how Jesus responded to difficult people. And I think about a few things the Bible tells us about responding to difficult people. First of all, I think when the woman caught in the act of adultery was brought to Jesus. Now, this is not a polite setting. It's not a dinner. It's not a Bible study. It's not a family gathering. These guys have come out aggressively to get Jesus to condemn this woman or to try to trap him. Uh, Jesus's, Jesus's response was to be silent. He knelt down on the ground and he was silent. And then he gave a thoughtful response. And maybe there's something there. Sometimes we can just take the difficult statement, the passive aggressive statement, and be quiet about it and give it a thoughtful response. Uh, other times Jesus would ask questions back. Uh, when he was asked, um, he was asked, where do you get your authority from? And Jesus's response back to them was, let me ask you a question and you tell me, and then I'll answer your question. So then he said, where did John the Baptist get his authority from? And they said, well, we don't know because they knew that if they said it was from God, then he would say, well, then why didn't you listen to him? And if he said uh, it was his own way, he wasn't following God, the people liked John the Baptist, so they knew that it was a trap. Uh, we can respond with questions. Now, sometimes we're not as witty as Jesus. 
sometimes we're not as, and I don't know if what's the right word there, we don't have the wisdom that Jesus had in responding with a question. But responding with a question with, with in a polite setting can be something like, that's interesting, why would you say that? Which would highlight their aggressiveness or maybe even their passive aggressiveness. And it's gonna make them say, if they're passive aggressive, they're probably gonna say, well, I was just joking. But it's gonna highlight it. Also, um, let's just take a look at a few of the, the, the things the Bible tells us that will help us to respond uh, to difficult people. This is Romans 12, 17 and 18. It says, repay no evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And if possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. This means that we do not wanna respond with trying to hurt them. We do not wanna escalate the difficulty. We don't wanna repay evil for evil. When someone says something mean and aggressive, saying something polite and kind, um, kind of the way that I've gotten used to handling with passive aggressive people, maybe not that I cut them off because I do cut them off. When, when, when they're saying it and I realize what they're doing, that's when I'll go, have you done something different with the place here? Or uh, did you get a, your haircut? I, I think it looks really good. Trying to change the conversation and, 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 and give them some kind of a compliment. But that might not be the best thing because you're really cutting them off. But repay no evil for evil. Don't let that fight or flight, Kimberly, kind of swell up inside of you where you really want to attack. Listen to what Colossians 4, 6 says. And this is why I think asking questions like, that's interesting, why would you say that? And then when they respond to that, follow up with another question that you really mean. Listen to what it says here in Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you know how you ought to answer each one. So we pray that God would help us to have our speech seasoned with salt, really taking an interest in other people. Galatians 5.16 tells us, I say then, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So before that polite setting, again, family dinner, family gathering, um, Bible study, where you know that difficult person is there, you pray that God would help you to walk in the spirit when you go. Because if you walk in the spirit, you're not gonna fulfill the lust of the flesh. And if you're walking in the spirit, then when people attack you, you generally can take it a little bit better because you're ready for it. You know this person is gonna be difficult, they're going to attack, they're gonna say things that are hard for me to, to respond to, and so you're walking in the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 tells us the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. So we wanna respond in the best way we can, walking in the Spirit, which means, first of all, that we're gonna be loving towards them, even if they are hurtful towards us. We're gonna try to walk in joy, because the joy of the Lord is our strength. We're gonna be peace, again, as much as it concerns us to try to be at peace with all men. We're gonna be long-suffering, which is patient, kind, good, gentle, self-controlled. Against such, uh, there is no laws. Now, um, a couple other things. Uh, Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition but uh, or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, esteem others better than yourself. Let each of you not look out for your own interest, but also for the interests of others. So here's where I say, 
take an interest in that person. It's so hard to continue on with the conversation when someone is just being rude. But if you can truly take an interest in them, if you can truly say, how have you been? If, the, if you know something's been going on in their lives, how, how are, how's your school going? Are you, are you almost completed with it? When do you start again? taking a genuine interest in them and putting their interest above your own interest. Again, we're looking for biblical ways to be able to respond to these. Now, um, Jesus gives a rather lengthy response in Luke 6, 23 through 36. And let me just read some of this. We might not read it all, but let me just read some of this. He said, but I say to you here, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And this is kind of where I've gotten the response when someone's being aggressive or passive aggressive to kind of cut them off and try to make a comment about something in the surrounding area, even if I can compliment them. Bless those who curse you, Jesus said, and pray for those who spitefully use you. And this means that you go in prepared. If you know you're dealing with someone who's a difficult person, you have the fight or flight and you want to get away from it, but you can't. Maybe that person lives in your home with you and they're just difficult then pray for them. Take a genuine interest that they would really get take take care of these things in their lives. Pray for those um, pray for those who spitefully use you. Uh, to him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer him the other also. They insult you, go ahead and take it. You don't have to always be fighting back. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic or give to everyone who asks you. And from him who takes away from you your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, also do to them. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? He's saying, if, if you love just the lovable, if you just get along with easy people, what credit is that? We need to be responding and caring for the unlovable. For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. So when you've got that difficult person, it's an opportunity now for you to respond in love, in kindness, in the spirit with someone that's not easy to be able to do it with. And now you're living truly different because people in the world, you can love lovable people. That's easy to do. Uh, and um, let me go on and look over here to Proverbs a little bit and we'll wrap this up. But we do get some help from Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 12, 16 in the NIV says, fools show their annoyance at once but the prudent overlook an insult. So here's just wisdom, being able to overlook the insult, not respond to it, not get angry, not walk away, but overlook the insult, try to respond with a question, with something that let them know that you really care about them. Um, just trying to, to walk in this wisdom. Proverbs 23 says, again in the NIV, it is to one's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. So don't be quick to fight back. Uh, Proverbs 12.10 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. And so asking the question, how do I respond in love? And maybe even asking the question before you go in, how do you respond in love to that difficult person? And again, by taking a genuine interest in them, not looking out for your own interest, but for their interest as well. Um, asking them questions about themselves and, and really taking, again, that, uh, that desire to really walk in love towards them, 
to see this if they're believers, that they would get it out of their lives. If they don't know God, that they would generally enter into a relationship with him. So uh, Kimberly, I hope that's helpful. Uh, the way that I take it is probably, you know, you're, you're running into some people that's really hard for you to avoid. Maybe you're working with them. Maybe it's another situation. But nevertheless, walking in the spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you respond in the flesh, and that just means that you're responding the way you want to do it, you, the way you would that you desire to, is always going to bring corruption, right? And so you want to walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Hope that's helpful to you. Um, it's good to see all you guys here today. If you have a question, then you can write out your question um, and then reread it a couple times, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. You could put a question in front of it. Um, we have a, a question from Russell uh, um, about Zechariah 6, 1 through 12. What are the significant of the significance of the horses in Zechariah 1 through 12? Well, let me go ahead and pull that passage up here. Hopefully it's not too lengthy. We'll take a look at it. So Zechariah 1 through 12. All right. Zechariah 6, 1 through 12. 6, 1 through 12. All right. So let me go ahead and bring this on the screen for you. And we will take a look at it, Russell. So here it says, then I turned, then I turned and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains. And the mountains were the mountains of bronze, with the first chariots were red horses, with the second chariot, black horses, with the third chariot, white horses, with the fourth chariot, dappled horses, strong steeds. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said, these are the four spirits of heaven who go out of their stations before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horse is going to the north country. The white are going after them and the dappled are going towards the south country. Then the strong steeds went out eager to go and they that they might walk and to and fro throughout the earth and he said go walk to to and fro throughout the earth so they walked and to and fro throughout the earth and they called to me and spoke to me saying see these who go towards the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country then the word of the lord came to me saying receive the gift from the captives and it gives the captives there from Babylon and to the house of Josiah. Um, then speak to him that says, that says the Lord. All right. So, Russell, I'm just going to have to say, um, without being able to spend some time in this text and being able to look at it, uh, that I, I'm not going to be able to really give you a clear answer on uh, what these horses are. Uh, we're told what they are here. Uh, they go out from the presence of the Lord, right? And they go out into the world. And so it's, it's, a, it's a way in which it represents a way in which God is interacting with the world. Um, but without really being able to take some time, look at context and uh, take a look at things, I'm not going to be able to give a good answer to that. And rather than just guess at it, which I don't want to do, uh, I don't want to act like I know when I don't know. And so it's just too lengthy to try to stop and really pick apart at this point. 
so sorry. Uh, this it, a Q&A is a really good setting for certain things. Lengthy, really complicated questions where I'm not familiar with the text is not. Um, I could, you know, if I was familiar with it, maybe be able to answer it, but sorry that I'm not able to help you. We have a question from Psychman. Greetings, Sir uh, Dude Robert and Dukes and Duchesses of Questiondom. Greetings to you. Psychman, in Psalms 22.6, why did Jesus call himself a worm? I'd wondered this for years until your message years ago. Thanks for then and now. All right, well, let's go to Psalms 22. Let's take a look at that. And actually, Psalms 22 is one of the most amazing prophecies in all of the pages of Scripture. And the reason for this is it is a Psalm of David. So we know it's a thousand years before Christ and hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented. And it's a, it's a first person account of a crucifixion. What I mean by first person, it's the person that's been crucified who is talking about what's going on. And we are given a clue right off the bat in verse one, who this is and what's happening here. So let me bring this up on the screen. Let's make our way through this and I'll talk a little bit about it until we get to the passage on what, why he calls himself a worm. And you're gonna see really clearly that this is Jesus on the cross. This is the first person account of Jesus. The power of this text is that he has a question right in the beginning. Let's take a look at it. It's, it's a great text. So Psalm 22, verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says this on the cross when there is darkness. And the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is still God at this point, but the sins of the world have been laid on him as a human who has been sinless up to this point. And we could say, although I don't know that we could say there's a complete separation, that God has looked away from the Son here. And Jesus is also fully human and fully God, but fully human, and is in shock, I think, as this as he says this. He he doesn't know what's going on. When you go when your body goes into shock, you're protecting yourself. And you you get you don't really know what's going on. That's why they ask him questions. When when you're talking to someone, do you know where you're at? Do you know who the president of the United States is? Do you know what year this is? Because your mind isn't working right. And Jesus is just like any other person, went through the scourging, carrying the cross, the beatings, and then being nailed to that cross and hung up. And his body is in shock and his mind. And so he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime and you do not hear in the night season and I'm not silent. The Bible tells us that there was darkness while Jesus was on the cross for an hour. But you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. So he's saying, we, we trusted in you. Why haven't you delivered me? He says, but I am a worm and no man. Now the word for worm here is the worm that they would use to crush and make red dye from. And so as Jesus looked down on himself, he saw himself covered in blood, and he says, I'm a worm. I'm this worm that's a red worm. Also, he's dying, and his sins are going to cleanse us. 
And so he says, a reproach of a man despised by all people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. These are the exact things they said to Jesus while he was on the cross. But you are he who took me out of my womb and made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from my birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Do not be far from from me, for trouble is near, for there is none who help me. Many bulls have surrounded me. The strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Literally, the shoulder bones of a crucified person would come out of joint as they, the weight went forward. And then there'd be pressure on their chests. And he said, my heart is like wax. It melts within me with that pressure on the chest. And remember that when Jesus, when they pierce his side to see if he's dead, water and blood comes out, which there are some medical reasons for uh, the water and blood being around um, the heart and coming out after someone is dead. He says, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue clings to my jaw. Jesus said, I thirst on the cross. You have brought me to the dust of death. The dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have encircled me. They pierced my hands and feet. This literally is like a lion on my hands and feet. And so some say that he's talking about being attacked by a lion and not being being crucified. But the Septuagint, which was written 160, 165 years before the time of Christ, used the word pierce. They pierced my hands and my feet. It, it's what's being said. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Literally happened to Jesus. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. Oh, my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. Now here, there's a pause. You've answered me. What? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? Why are you not answering my cries? And all of a sudden, he gets the answer while he's on the cross. You've answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. I'm going through this for the nation of Israel. He's going to go on to say, not only will I declare your name to my brethren, but to all the nations of the world, to the Gentiles. He will realize he's doing this for the Gentiles. The text goes on to say, not only to, the, to my brethren and to the Gentiles, but to a people who have not even been born yet. His mind even goes to us. And so the Bible says in Hebrews 12 that he endured the cross, he despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. I not only think that Psalms 22 is a first-person account of a crucifixion, it is the first-person account of Jesus and what his mind was going through on the cross and how God answered him and how even on the cross he embraced it, knowing that he was doing it for the brethren, for the Gentiles, for the people around the world. And then the very end of this psalm, after he talks about the people who have not even been born yet, let's go to the very end of this. We'll go to verse 30. So in verse 30, it says, a prosperity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. Now he's talking about people that haven't been born. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That's us, you and me, that he has done this or literally that it is finished.
that he has done this, that it is finished. And Jesus, of course, said, Totelestai on the cross, and it was done. So he calls himself a worm, not just because he has become sin, but because he sees himself with all of that red and all of those colors, uh, with all of the red that's there and the blood, and is reminded of the worm that they used for the dye. All right, so thank you very much, Psych Man, for your question. I appreciate that and for being able to go over Psalms 22, because it is absolutely amazing. It is a prophecy, and it's one of the amazing prophecies uh, that we find in the Old Testament. All right, so we have a question now from Jari. Jari says, question, should churches sell books and products at the church, or is this unbiblical? If Jesus was alive, would he be turning over money tables, or was that for that time? Thanks. All right, thank you, Jari, for your question. Um, it, it's a really good one. So um, most churches today, bookstores are, are dying uh, because audiobooks, because you can order books online. So you can kind of order anything you want. You can have it delivered to you. Um, you can go browse online. And bookstores are just, are just kind of dying. Um, if your motive in the bookstore is to fleece the people, you're trying to make money on the people, then that's a bad motive. I think Jesus would flip the tables. If your motive is to minister to them, then that's positive. So if, you're, if your prices are such that allow you to be able to do it, but you're not making a profit on it, then I think that's a good heart that you're saying, look, and, and our, our bookstore and our church, both of them have, have become really Bible stores. We have Bibles in there and people could go in and browse and they can buy Bibles and it becomes good for them. Now, I can all, we'll also give them a Bible. We have paperback Bibles that we'll hand out to people and give to them so we don't make them buy the word of God. But I've often thought of that. It's one of the reasons why when we'll do a conference, uh, we've got a conference coming up this next year on defending the faith, apologetics. And I'm really excited about this conference, but we'll sell t-shirts at it. But the t-shirts will be to cover the cost of the t-shirts um, and that's it. Uh, we'll also provide t-shirts along with the registration um, for the conference. So when people register at the conference, um, they'll be able to pick up a t-shirt that's, that's their size for them. Uh, I think it all comes back to what was going on. So what was happening when Jesus turned over the tables? They were exchanging Roman money for temple shekels, because you could only pay in temple shekels. And they were charging people an exorbitant amount. If they, and so they were fleecing them, they were taking advantage of them. They were rejecting, the priests were rejecting their, their sheep or their, their sacrifice that should have been acceptable and sending them out to the court to buy something they pre-approved. The, the, he let the doves go, he, he, to chase the livestock out. He flipped over the money changers tables and said, you have made it a den of thieves. He was, it was stealing from them. It wasn't just about meeting needs, having something available for them there or selling something, but you have made it a den of thieves. So when you are operating a church, like I do with the, the board of elders that we have, then you want to ask yourself, why are we doing this? And if you're doing it to take advantage of the people, then that's a real problem. 
if you are um, marking something up to an exorbitant rate to try to make money on, never should. First of all, I don't think churches are making money on their bookstores. Bookstores are usually supplemented by the church. That's the way it's been for us ever since the beginning. Uh, we supplemented, the church itself supplemented the bookstore. Uh, rarely has the bookstore ever turned what you would call a profit. Uh, there was a time when bookstores were dying and we had a guy on staff who was really good at going and buying whole bookstores and bringing them back. And during that time, our bookstore turned a profit, but that's because we were getting such merchandise at such a low price. We were able to really bless people and it was able to help the church as well. So no, I don't think that Jesus would be walking in and flipping tables over if they're selling t-shirts for a certain thing or an event that's coming up or a bookstore. Um, but if they are taking advantage of people, then I think the, the real question's gotta be asked. Um, would Jesus be flipping these tables over? And I'll give you some ways in which I think that Jesus would in churches today. And that's when the pastor himself writes a book and then that book is pushed and the pastor is going to pocket the money from the book. He gets the money that comes from the book. Um, when um, there have been a couple of times that I've talked with book companies about writing a book. One of the things that I didn't like was, well, one of the reasons that they thought I was a good candidate for that was because of the size of the church that I pastor, plus the size of our social media accounts and the influence that we, and, and the influence of friends that I have who are pastors who pastor large churches. So when they started talking about, we got to the point where, okay, this is the book that we're gonna write. We think this is gonna be good. We think it's gonna minister to people. I felt comfortable with it. They felt comfortable with it then I would have to start going to pastors that I, friends of mine, to their churches to talk about something out of the book to try to sell the book there. I'd have to try to, have to sell it to our congregation. And there have been churches that have bought books to be able to get the book on the bestseller list. Those kind of manipulations, I, I, I think are, are problematic. And it's one of the reasons that I said, you know what, I'd rather just back out of this. And if I'm ever gonna, if I'm ever gonna write a book, it's gonna be because I really felt like I wanted to write it and I don't wanna go around trying to, to hawk the book to people who are out there. So these things can indeed be problematic and the money can go back into the, the person's pocket. And if they're pushing it for that reason, um, it could be a blessing. I think Charles Swindoll, honestly, writes his book because he's his books because he's gifted and he does it. And Charles Swindoll makes enough money from his books that he doesn't have to take a, a paycheck from the church. I'm not saying he doesn't. I'm just saying that that could be a blessing that someone could could make enough money off of it as long as they're not trying to manipulate just to take advantage of people. Making a living being an author is not a bad thing but it's one way in which there can be these manipulations as well as in bookstores. All right, Jari. So I think it all depends on the motive and if you're trying to rip people off or if you're just trying to honestly meet a need. And so if you're honestly meeting a need, it can be something that is very powerful. All right, so thank you. Uh, we have a question from Andre. Andre, you're not near the first one today. I don't know what's happening. 
Andre says, and um, after the great white throne judgment, we will have no memory of this world. Isaiah 65, 17, question mark. All right, um, this is interesting. So let me go ahead and take a look at this and see what this passage says. Um, I, I don't think, I think we will have a memory. Let me see what Isaiah 66, 17 says. Thank you for your question, Andre. As always, it's always a good one. So 60, 65, 17, all right, sorry. I got to go all the way back to find Isaiah 65 and then 17. Um, all right, so 65, 17. Yeah, so I know what verse this is you're talking about. Let's take a look at it. It says, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I rejoice with Jerusalem. So I, I come back and I look at this verse, not as being a memory wipe, but that we are so overwhelmed with the new creation of the heaven and the earth and all that God is doing and all that we're going to do with him, that we are not obsessed with this world, that we're thinking about the things that are around us there and not thinking about here. The former things shall not be remembered. I don't know if that's a reference to, I would say it's not a reference to not being able to remember, but I think it's a reference with looking at the world around you that is so absolutely incredible that your mind is there. You're 100% there with God. In God is a fullness of joy. Um, I don't think we're going to get to heaven and not know one another or or get into, sorry, get into that situation where, where we don't remember the former things like the people that we were married to um, and, and those kind of things. Uh, I think he's just saying we are going to be so enveloped in the new heaven and the new earth that our minds are going to be there and not all the way back here. All right. And um, I'm trying to think now of uh, passages that would that would speak to that. Um, and I don't have anything that's coming to mind uh, right at the moment, but I, I do think that that's what it's talking about. Um, I don't think that we are going to forget who we were or the people we knew um, or the friends that we have made here, that we, we wouldn't know them in heaven. Um, when we see people, when we see people who have died, like Samuel making an appearance, he knows um, what's going on. Uh, so, but a good question. Uh, thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. And um, I'll take a little bit more of a look at that, Andre and uh, come back and revisit that in the future, all right? It's because I'm not completely satisfied with the answer that I gave there, but I don't think our memories are gonna be wiped, all right? So uh, Melissa says, how old is the earth and uh, we believe Adam and Eve and, and when we believe Adam and Eve started? All right, thank you, Melissa. This is a really good question. And so this is an, another in-house discussion, right? I talk about them from time to time. Was it? six literal days or though those six literal days represent a long amount of time. Now, I never argue with anyone about 
how old the earth is. If you put a gun to my head and ask me, tell me, or I'm going to kill you. What, what do you believe about the creation of the world? I'm going to tell you that I believe it was a literal six days. I lean towards that, but I never argue with anyone about it. And here's why, because God created the earth. If God created the earth in, in, in the first day and six literal days later, there, there was nothing. And then God created it. And six little days later, he created man. Then God created the earth to look old. And even in our universe, when he created it, we are looking at light that comes from now. We know from the, what's the name of the new uh, telescope that's out there now, the Webb telescope, that there's light coming from more than 14 billion light years away, which is how old we used to think the universe was. And now they're saying that the universe is older than that. And so what could be happening here? Well, let me just go on with this, this concept. So if God created the earth, if he created the universe and the earth and six days later, he created man, then God created the universe to look old and the earth to look old. And so when someone says, I believe in the long, long earth, I believe that the earth is, is, billions of years old. I don't argue with them. On the day Adam was created, if I brought a scientist in that didn't know that he was created on that day, and I said to that scientist, how old is this man? He would say, I don't know, 25, maybe 18. And I go, nope, you're wrong. It's a day. He's a day old. Well, the scientist is going to go, uh, this is not what day old babies look like. Now that's, a, that's an extreme argument that couldn't have happened, right? On when, when Adam was created, nevertheless, it makes the point that God created the earth that looked old, the, the universe that they could look at stars from hundreds of thousands of light years away, billions of light years away, which means it would take that much time for it to travel here. And so they would say, it looks like it's old. And they would actually look at us and go, how could you possibly think it's not old? They kind of like, you're, you're an idiot. You don't think it's old. I mean, look, it is old. You could just look at it. So I don't argue with people about it. Uh, I do and will argue about evolution. And I don't want to say argue. I will discuss and take a strong stance because I don't believe evolution can be supported. There are problems inside of evolution today. And evolutionists agree with that, that evolution, as it was taught to me in school, is not tenable. It can't be, it can't be done. For example, the eye is far too complex. Darwin himself said, if, if the cell is, is more complex, then evolution can't work. There's not enough time for things to evolve. So evolution against creation is the problem. So how old were Adam and Eve? Can you add up all of the genealogies and the Bible and go back to the biblical date of almost 6,000 years? and say that's how long ago Adam and Eve was built. There are people who believe that, and I wouldn't argue with them. Then there are people that believe that it was a lot longer than that ago that God created Adam and Eve, and that there are gaps in the genealogical record. Now, let's also talk about this. There's the idea of a gap theory. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the spirit was over the surface of the water and the earth was formless and void. In fact, let me go ahead and pull this up and I'll, I'll get this for you. Just all the way back to Genesis chapter one. 
Let's take a look at this. So it says here, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was on the, the, the face of the deep. Now, there's a passage in Isaiah that says God created the world and he did not create it formless and void. So here's the thinking, that God created the, the world, it wasn't formless and void, then there was some kind of a destruction, and some believe maybe it was when Satan fell, that the earth was destroyed, and that what we have in Genesis chapter one is a recreation. When it goes on to say in the next verse, the spirit was hovering over the waters, then God said, let there be light, and there was light, and then light begins, and these things follow in a, a particular way in which I've heard scientists say, this is the way that we would believe that the world would be created, that light would be created first, that, that it actually follows in these exact ways. Um, but then that there would be a gap and we don't know how long that gap was. The gap theory was created when the Piltdown Man was found, which was believed to be a missing link. And so pastors started looking for ways to put the Piltdown Man and then they found out it was a hoax. And this is why I don't believe that we should ever change what we believe for something that someone finds because we don't know what they're seeing. When, when National Geographic came out with Lucy, you know, the first, the oldest um, human that was ever found, Lucy was a lemur, not a human. And it's believed that we came by scientists that we came from lemurs. And I think that that obviously is extremely problematic. And a lot of the things that they are calling our ancestors and calling human, they know are subhuman. They, they, they wouldn't put them in human line. They just say that our, they were our ancestors. So how do we know that they didn't exist at the same time that, that we existed? Now, if someone believed in, in theistic evolution, I would not say that's gonna keep them out of heaven. That they believe that evolution went and then Adam Eve finally came out of the scene. The question is, have you put your trust in Christ? Do you believe in Jesus? That's, that is the, what is the crux of how you get into heaven. It's not what you believe that's wrong that's going to keep you out of heaven. It's what you believe about living and, and inviting, your life, inviting Christ into your life, receiving him, being born again, becoming a child of God and living for him. Now, I think that these other things can be things that we can feel strongly about. Like you said, put a gun to your head, you know what you believe, but it's an in-house discussion and I don't have any problem uh, receiving someone that believes differently than I do. And as I said, I just pretty much stay away from the six day creation and the long earth thing because the earth was created by God to look old whenever it was created whenever he created it, unless God did go back in time. And who knows that God couldn't do this because God to a day is like a to God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And that God didn't go back and create the universe over a slow amount of time. And when the earth was mature enough to support life, he created Adam and Eve. And there, there are Christians who are scientists who do believe that what they find supports that. And that a lot of the destruction in the fossils is a result of the flood. And certainly the fossils are a result of a catastrophe because you find all the, these dinosaurs and stuff piled up together. And so they really are a result of the catastrophe. 
So um, I hope that that is helpful there, Melissa. Um, it's not something I think that we should divide over or argue over, especially in the days we're living when we really want to see people come to Christ. So, um, but I do think that we that we we should take a look at the scriptures and really determine what it is that we believe. Um, I do think there are certain scientists that are really good. Um, I, Hugh Ross, I believe, believes in a long earth creation, believes that it wasn't a literal six days. Ken Ham, obviously, believes that it was a literal six days. And um, both of them are Christian. And bo both of them love the Lord. And so I think that's absolutely okay. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate your question. Uh, let's go ahead and see here. If you're vis if you're new here with us today, really glad that you're here. Uh, if you have a question, then write your, the word question out or, or Q in front of your question. Then write out your question, reread it, make sure it makes sense, and um, add any references that we might be able to look them up. All right. And then go ahead and submit your question. So we have a follow-up from Jari. Jari says, follow-up future Q&A, what is the worm that does not die and the fire that is quenched? Are they literal or are they symbolic? Thanks. All right, Jari. Yeah, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about that. So Jesus makes reference. Jesus's word for hell was Gehenna. And he said, where the fire never goes out and the worm never dies. Now it was believed for a long time that Gehenna was the dump for Jerusalem, and I've been to the Valley of Gehenna, by the way, and it is beautiful. It's a beautiful valley. When when we go on tours to Israel, when you're driving by the gates in the old city, the valley is to your left. And I'll tell people, you know, get the little microphone. If you guys want to see hell, look over your corner. There's Gehenna. Why did Jesus use Gehenna then? If well, we, we found out later on that there wasn't a dump. There's, there's no archaeological um, or supportive manuscript evidence that Gehenna was ever a dump for Jerusalem. Not, not that I know of. The last time that I've checked into it, there, there's no archaeological evidence for it. But Gehenna was the place where they sacrificed their children to Baal, where the people of Jerusalem sacrificed their children to Baal. And so they would burn their, file, fi their fires to, I think it was Molech, and they'd heat up these images and they'd put their children on the arms and they'd kill them before God. This was an abominable act towards God. And it may be why Jesus referred to hell as Gehenna. So Jesus says, it would be better for you to enter life without your hand than to go into Gehenna where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. Well, you're not gonna go into eternity lame. In, in heaven, there's no more lame. So Jesus is making a point here that it's better for you to sacrifice now than to be separated from God forever. The Bible says that some are going to be beaten with few stripes, and some are going to be beaten with many. But the Bible does say there is gnashing of teeth. The Bible says in Luke 16, as the rich man looked up and saw Abraham and the poor man in Abraham's, um, in Abraham's comfort, come be comforted by Abraham, that he looked up from Hades, which is a Greek word for the Greek god Hades, which is also a Greek word for his underworld. So it was the, it literally means unseen and that he looked up in torment. 
so he was tormented while he was there. And uh, talking about the grave, maybe talking about, I don't know about bodies being burned up, but I do think that we are talking about a literal torment. Now, some say, well, what does it mean then? Some are beaten with few and some are beaten with many. Not everybody is treated the same. That's really important to understand. Some, especially extreme Calvinists, will just say, we're just so wicked, we're all gonna be treated the same, whether we're Hitler or your grandma is gonna be treated the same. But I don't believe that. I um, And I think that there are there is metaphors that are being talked about because the Bible uses the word perish and destruction when it talks about hell. The, the road is broad that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so people will say, well, he's saying perish as an analogy to mean being separated from God forever. You're perishing from the life of the living or you're being destroyed from the life of the living and that's an analogy. Or the worm or the fire are analogies and there's some other kind of suffering that is gonna be going on throughout all of eternity. Either way, you've gotta take certain things as an analogy. And so are there little worms and fire? I don't know. I'm not an annihilationist. I don't believe that people will will be burned up completely and be gone. Um, at least not all people. Is it possible that there could be that God could mean some are going to be beaten with you, that there would be a limit to the amount of time that someone is suffering? And we tread on very thin ice here because most of the cults lean towards annihilationism. And I think that because of that, the Millerites did, um, uh, William Branham did, the United Pentecostals do. I think, I think you, when, when you run into these cultish groups, they usually believe in it. Now, that's not a reason for us not to believe in it, but I think that it ought to give us pause to stop and look and say, what does it mean when it says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever? Some will be resurrected to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And we do know that the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan are tormented for all of eternity in hell that was created for Satan and his angels. And that death and Hades in people's resurrected bodies are thrown into hell. And so all of this makes us come back and go, look, we might not have a really clear understanding about hell. And I think that most people wanna stay away from it. They just wanna make it sound as bad as they can and stay away from it at all. But maybe, maybe we just don't understand our own sinfulness. Maybe we don't understand how bad we are. And that there really should be a punishment because of our us being cavalier towards sin. When John saw Jesus, the vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter one, he fell at his feet as dead. And Jesus laid his hand on him and said, don't be afraid. When Peter, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, in his glory, they fell down. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. Because he, he took our sins. 
he washed us and made us whiter than snow. And maybe we don't realize how incredible that is. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, woe am I, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. The more we see God, the more we may see our own sinfulness and why God, who is the judge of the earth, would judge sin. Lord, help us to see sinfulness. Help us to have an understanding here. Um, I'm, I'm not sure, Jari, that the typical teaching about hell, the, you know, someone's going to have their, their skin fried off of them forever, their skin regenerated every day and fried off forever. I'm not sure that that's what's taking place there. I question that. And I realize that, you know, I, what, what, what part of this is analogies? And I realize that I might be getting myself into some trouble here as I talk about it. Um, but I think that we have taken Dante's Inferno, that we've taken the idea of the Greek underworld from Hades and Hades ruling it. And we brought that over into Christianity and we should make some separations there and start really looking at what is at real and what is not. And this is a particular area that I really want to dive into and I really want to do some Bible studies on. Um, and I am going to be uh, covering it later on. But thank you very much, Jari, for that question. It's a good question and a good one for us to stop and look at and consider is um, what, what, what part of this is analogy? What, and what part of it is, um, is not? Because one part has to be. It's either perishing and destruction or it's not. And it's, it's eternal. And so, you know, where, where, and, and what is it? Maybe it's, it's, it is somewhere in the middle, however that middle could be. All right. So uh, again, good to see you guys here. Good to have you uh, with us on our Q&A. We do this Q&A every Wednesday and Saturday from four to five. Um, it is a supplement to our Bible studies. We're in the book of Revelation now. We're going to be covering the, we covered the vision last week. We're going to be covering the events surrounding the vision in our Bible study tonight. Uh, I look forward to covering that. That's in about an hour from now that we will have our Bible study. And uh, at least we'll start the worship in about an hour from now. Uh, we'll be teaching Revelation in about an hour and a half um, from this particular point. Love to have you join us. You can join us online. Or if you're here in Tucson, we'd love to have you come out and fellowship with us, worship God with us, and then join us uh, for our Bible study. All right. And again, uh, it's good to see you guys. Good to have you here. I'm just making my way to the end of the comments section here. We have a question here from Iris. Iris says, um, hi, Pastor. Do our souls rest or go to heaven when we pass? Thank you, Iris. I appreciate your question. Um, so the idea here that some have taught is the idea of soul sleep. And this is because the Bible says when it's referring to a Christian dying, Paul often used the word sleep. First Corinthians 15, he said, we are not all going to sleep, but some of us are going to be changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye. So they thought, well, when we die, we go to sleep and then we all wake up at the same time. We're going to look over at somebody and say, how long have you been here? Ah, I just got here. How, how long have you been here? I just got here too. Like we're all going to die, sleep until we're all resurrected. And that moment will be in the presence of God. Um, that's not what the Bible teaches. Paul said to be absent in this body is to be present with the Lord. Paul used sleep in 1 Thessalonians 4 to talk about the death of saints because we die here and our body is destroyed, our body is decayed, but we are in the presence of God and we're awake. And one day we will be resurrected into the bodies that we have. 
So this is called the intermediate state, Iris. And the intermediate state is that state between the moment I die now and when I'm resurrected in my resurrected body. And we are going to be spirits. Now, here's the thing about angels. Angels are spirits. They can manifest in, in bodies. Some of us have entertained angels unaware. Is it possible that as a spirit in heaven, we're going to be able to manifest in a body that's not going to be our continual body? In the book of Revelation, there's souls under the altar that are waiting for God to complete things. And so is that intermediate state different than the intermediate state that we have now? And we don't know. Paul also talked about being unclothed and being further clothed so that some believe that we have a temporary body in the intermediate state in the presence of God. We are spirits and our spirits will go on living. Jesus said, if anybody believes in me, he will not die. That means we continue to go on living. And if you do die, meaning this body, then you will live. You'll, you'll live and you'll be in the presence of God. And Paul had this dilemma going on about really he wanted things to be done, wanted to go home, but he knew it was better for them if he stayed. So he said, it would be better for me to go, but I'll stay. To be, be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And so there is no, there is no soul sleep. In the intermediate state, there is some question about what we'll be like when we're in his presence, uh, but we will be aware, we'll be in his presence and uh, probably have either some kind of tip uh, of temporary body or be able to manifest like angels do who are spirits in a, a bodily form. All right. So thank you guys for your questions. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you guys here. Love the community that we've got going here. I hope that you guys have a, a great night. Stay close to Jesus. I love you. Um, serve him, follow him, pour into his word, really look into the things um, about how you should live and how God wants you to live and live for him. All right. So God bless you guys. It's been good seeing you. I'm going to go ahead and go. I'll see you guys in just a little while. Uh, we'll have our Bible study in the book of Revelation tonight, both at our East and West campus. Okay. God bless you guys. We'll see you later on.